Good evening. It's good to be back again, and uh, trust that you'll be able to uh, join us for the entire hour tonight. We are continuing our study in the book of Romans, and we will be back in Romans chapter 5. We'll be picking it up where we left off last week, which is verses 10 and 11. Just a few things to finish up there, and then we'll be moving forward. So uh, let's just spend a moment in prayer, and we'll get busy. Father, as always, we're grateful for your word, grateful, Father, for the truth of your word, and really the wonderful message that it communicates, Father, to us. Uh, the message of your love and the hope we have in Christ. We do thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that it is explained in great detail for us in the book of Romans that enables us, Father, to understand that what it is that we believe in is something that is rational, it is logical, it is truth which flows from the heart of God himself, uh, that it's not just some kind of uh, hopeful or wishful thinking uh, that we place in some kind of fairy tale. So we thank you, Father, for the reality of the gospel. And even though, Lord, we learn of the troubling news of our sin and our separation from God, we know, Lord, is the truth that we need to hear so that we can recognize our need of being saved from our sin. And, Father, we know that um, you have provided all of these things for us, and we are so thankful. So now, Lord, as we continue our study in the book of Romans, we ask for your blessing. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Romans 5, verses 10 and 11, it reads this way, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So when we finished last week, we, were, we had started to go through six reasons why we as believers really fail to rejoice that come out of, uh, out of our study here so far in the book of Romans. And we covered five of them. So let me repeat uh, the first four, and then we'll pick it up because we were kind of in the middle of the fifth one, and we'll conclude with the sixth one. So again, these are reasons why as believers we fail to rejoice. We fail to experience the joy that we are to have when it comes to our salvation and the knowledge that the gospel brings to us. So number one, we fail to grasp the truth of justification by faith alone. Uh, again, we've spent an enormous amount of time, as Paul has, explaining the details of what it means to be justified and how justification takes place and why it takes place the way that it does, why God has set it up that way. And so if we fail to understand that and to grasp that, we will fail to rejoice. Uh, we will be feeling instead doubt, anxiety, and many other troubling emotions as we kind of struggle to find ways to assure ourselves that we have either obtained salvation or trying to make sure that we find a way to obtain it. Secondly, which is similar to the first one, is we still look partly to our own works. We know that our salvation, which is accomplished for us by the grace of God, has nothing to do with anything uh, that we do. In other words, it's, it's not connected to good that we do or any good works or, or task that we accomplish. Uh, and even though we, we recognize, and many times intellectually, that our salvation is by grace and by grace alone, uh, we have a tendency to want to add to that or think that we need to add to that. And so we we tend to look back at how we're living and, and what we're able to accomplish uh, as a way of, I guess, giving ourselves that sense of certainty that we belong to God. And it's just not going to give that to us. Uh, it's going to fall short. And so we fail to rejoice because we are still in part looking to ourselves. Thirdly, we fail to rejoice because we look too much at ourselves and the blackness of our own hearts. Now, this doesn't seem to be all that common with Americans, anyway. Uh, but the idea here is that the individual engages in, in morbid introspection. And that is where, as we become more aware of our own sin and how sinful we are, which is a good thing, and we begin to feel the weight of our sin, which is a good thing, we then focus almost totally on that. And we, again... Uh, think, which I think is informed a lot by our emotions, we're not sure how it is that God could really forgive us of all of that because our sin is really, in a sense, overwhelming. Of course, God is fully aware of all of that, uh, but it's overwhelming to us. 
And so we fail then to look at the strength of God and the grace and the goodness of his character and we overly focus or we're only looking at uh, the, the darkness of our own life, the darkness of our own soul. And so as a result of that, we don't experience uh, the joy. We don't rejoice in, in the salvation that we have. Then uh, also, we fail to meditate. We fail to spend sufficient time in studying and working out the doctrines of the Word. So again, when it comes to the studying of the Word of God, there's no competition among believers as to who can learn the most or learn the most the fastest. Uh, there's, there's no race. There's no competition. Um, and so sometimes we put pressure on ourselves and to, to either to learn more or we think we have to learn so much that it paralyzes us and we, we fail to study anything. And of course, sometimes we're just plain lazy and we don't want to work at understanding the Bible and understanding the doctrines that are there. It's just a kind of a lifelong process where we should just enjoy reading the Bible and we should enjoy studying it. We should enjoy learning and relearning the truth of the Word of God because it's a major part of our life. It's just God speaking to us, giving to us His revelation, those things that He wants us to know and to understand. So in the same way that a person doesn't grow old uh, learning new information about their favorite hobby, uh, whatever that hobby may be, uh, whether it's woodworking or welding or um, gardening or whatever it is, uh, we enjoy not only being involved in the hobby itself, but learning about it, understanding more about it, almost becoming maybe an expert in some of these things. So it's the same kind of idea when it comes to uh, who we are as Christians and the Bible. So this is, again, not a demand that you spend five hours a day studying the Word of God because for some individuals, they just can't imagine how they can carve out that much time. Well, God hasn't placed that on us. But there is this idea that is present in Scripture that as we go along in life, we have a desire to learn and to understand. And we do that, again, every day on our own. We learn in bits and pieces many different things because of all the information uh, that's out there. Trivia, uh, as well as those things that are important. And so we need to make sure that we're not cutting out the Word of God, uh, but that it is, again, central to our life. And so if we fail to dwell on the truth of the Word of God and, and study it like we ought to, eventually it'll have a toll on us and we won't have the joy that God wants us to experience that deep sense of contentment uh, that we should have because of the relationship that we have with Him. Sometimes we lack in this area because we don't reason and argue sufficiently out of the Scriptures. In other words, you may have a good knowledge of the Bible, you may have a growing knowledge of the doctrine, but we don't use it as our base to reason from. We keep reasoning from, I guess you would say, from ourselves. So we need to always go back to, well, what does the Word of God say? How do, I, how, do, how do I apply the Word of God in my thinking as I think through this subject or as I think through this issue? And, so we, and because so often what happens is we're not thinking from the viewpoint or the paradigm from the Word of God, uh, that can kind of get us in, into trouble or, or we can reach a dead end where we're unable to figure out or resolve whatever the issue may happen to be. And so we do need to make sure that the Bible is our starting point. Again, it's, it's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. That's what uh, Proverbs tells us. So we need to make sure that that is what we're doing. Let me read to you from the book of Isaiah. You've heard this before, but think of it again in, in these terms of how God is using this language. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. God says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. So you see right there, what, what we have is this statement from God himself that we need to sit down and reason things out. And that if we reason things out, uh, obviously using the truth of the word of God, it will help us to come to the proper conclusions. It will help us to think properly about whatever the issue or issues may happen to be. So again, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here, God wants to sit down with Israel and to think through something. And the idea here is that God has made some promises to Israel about how he's going to provide for them, how he's going to protect them, how he's going to supply their needs. And so here, what he says is that even though their their sins are like just, you know, as, as red like blood and you can't get it out, he says, you will become white as snow. You will be purified. And he says then, this all this is... This, 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 what he's going to do here is contingent then on them being willing and obedient, willing to follow the will of the Lord and being obedient to what God has said. And so if they, are, if they obey the laws that God has given them as a nation, God says they will eat of the good of the land. And so you can see that in many of the promises of God, that he talks about how the crops will grow and there'll be a plentiful harvest and how the animals will get enough to feed and there'll be plenty of animals uh, for them to be able to eat or whatever it is that they need to do uh, and, and whatever it is they need to use them for. So there's this promise of a, of a surplus, a promise of just overflowing blessing for them if, if they live in obedience. If they don't, if they disobey God, if they, if they sin, then they're going to be punished. If they rebel, the sword is going to come and many of them are going to die. And we see this throughout the history of Israel where, where they will live in disobedience and God will call uh, pagan nations around them to come and, and, and attack Israel. And they will be punished for their disobedience and their rebellious activity before God. And so God says, let's just reason this out. This, this makes sense. You do A, I do A. You do B, I do B. And so there's a logic to that. It's not an unreasonable thing that God is laying out for them. So again, what's really striking is that Jehovah God here invites man, invites Israel to sit down and think seriously with him on matters of grave importance. He wants them to think about their life, their future, and how things can go well. The latter part of the verses, as I've already said, focuses on the sinfulness of of man or the sinfulness of of, uh, Israel. And... um, as a result of that, the consequences are coming their way. So God wants them to think seriously about eternal and spiritual matters. That is tied into their physical well-being. You know, that's all together. The nation of Israel is called to be a holy nation. They serve God. They live in obedience to God. As a result of that, God will care for their for both their spiritual needs and their physical needs. And they won't have any uh, any any kinds of difficulties. So... Again, the problem that we face today it may be the same problem they faced back then. And I'm sure that you have seen this. Maybe you experienced it yourself before you became a believer in Christ. But to, but to try to get individuals, to try to get people to think seriously about their soul, it's a very difficult thing to do. People just don't give it much thought. It's as if they don't think we have a soul. Or if we do have a soul, they're not sure how to define what that is. And then you combine that with the lack of belief in an afterlife. Most people, in a practical way, think this is all there is. They have wishful thoughts, wishful thinking that perhaps there's a heaven or a good place you go to after after death. But they don't really know much about it. They don't know anybody who's been there and come back that they can really believe And so as a result, they just pretty much live in the here and now, and that's it. So to think about the future, to think about their soul, they just don't do that naturally. And so that's part of the uh, problem that we face in trying to get people to move in that direction. Sixthly, so we've covered five. So sixthly, this is why we don't rejoice as believers, is because we rest too much on our feelings. Faith does lead to feelings, and it includes feelings, yet our feelings do not come first. So again, we're not dismissing our feelings altogether, but our feelings need to be ruled and informed by the truth of the Word of God. That's really important. In other words, 
we need to mature, that we mature spiritually, that informs our emotions. In the same way that as we raise our children, when our children are, are young, we don't like it, but we expect for them to have a temper tantrum every now and then, we, where they, they just are beside themselves as they rebel or whatever they're doing when it comes to their being upset because we've asked them to do something. We've told them they need to go to bed or no, they're not going to get a, a, another bowl of ice cream or no, they can't go to uh, the fair again or whatever it may happen to be and they get upset and they throw a temper tantrum. We expect that, but we also expect that as they mature that their emotions will respond to their maturity and we would even say that their emotions mature so then as they get older and we have to tell them that something's not going to go their way we expect a more mature response it would be embarrassing for everyone if your 16 year old said hey i want to go with my friends this weekend you know we're going to go to a ball game or we're going to do this and do that and you remind them well remember we have a family outing so you can't go we're all going to be doing this together and they just plop themselves on the floor lay down maybe on their stomach and they start flailing their arms and their legs and screaming and crying that'd be embarrassing for everyone we would want to know what's happened have they hit their head what's taking place and so again we expect a certain amount of maturity to take place by the age of 16 hopefully sooner than that, but we're just using that as our illustration. So the same thing happens to us again as, as Christians. We live in a world that is where individuals basically live by their passions. They live by their emotions. Uh, their thinking is informed and led by their emotions often, not always, but often. And so that needs to be reversed. So again, we're not discounting emotions. We're not saying emotions are evil. Emotions can become problematic if they're not kept in check as we mature in Christ. Let me read to you from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, he was a medical doctor and he was expected because he was a, uh, a doctor who was well-respected in, in England, in London. And he had a very promising career. There were those who believed that he was probably on his way to one day being appointed to be the king's personal physician. The king already had a personal physician at that time, but, you know, physicians get old and they have to retire. And it was believed that Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of those men, that one of those kinds of men, one of those kinds of doctors that would be a perfect candidate for that. So when he announced one day that he was going to leave medical practice and that he was going to become a preacher, there were many who thought that he literally needed to have his head examined. They thought he needed to to have a psychiatric evaluation and to be talked out of really this foolishness and this foolhardy decision that he had made. Of course, it wasn't a foolish decision. He was fully convinced it's what God wanted him to do. And there are literally thousands of individuals through the years who believe that he made the exact right decision. But he was a very intelligent man, had keen insight into many things, and he said this, he said, our faith from God and in God really means believing God, believing all that he tells us about himself and all that he tells us about what he has done for us, all that he tells us about what he is going to do and trusting ourselves utterly and absolutely to that. So he says all of that because the idea is, is that if we are believing in that way, we will not then be depending upon our feelings. That is the exercise of faith. We are looking to Christ, we are looking to the Word and what it says, and we have placed ourselves fully, we have fully embraced what the Word of God has said. So it means that reasoning and arguing, you know, this idea that I'm talking about means that we're going to reason or argue on the basis of revelation, which is what the Bible is. Faith means not that I try to reason myself to God, but that believing the revelation given by God, I reason from it. Faith means drawing out the inevitable deductions from what God has said. And so because of this, and from this, we rejoice. We rejoice in the truth. So no matter what's happening in my day or what's happening in my life, I reason from Scripture about my future. 
So let's say I'm a young man. Let's say that uh, I have, let's say that I have applied myself in some college that I'm attending and things are not going well. It's too difficult for me. Or maybe I have the wrong major, wrong area, uh, the, uh, wrong pursuit of whatever career I want to embark on. And so that can become very depressing, which would be normal. But I don't become despondent. I don't despair of life because I reason from the Bible. Well, I've hit a speed bump here. Apparently, this is not the way that God wants me to go. There's something else that God would have me to do. I don't know what that is. But I know that my future is secure because God will lead and direct me. And ultimately, God is going to use me in the way he sees fit to bring glory and honor to his name. And along with that, I know that not only does my life have a purpose, but I know that in the end, whenever that end comes, I'm going to be with God for all of eternity because this is a very small portion of eternity that I'm living out right now. And so I'm able to, to reason from that, from that position, and still have great joy even in the midst of my own failure. So looking back at Romans 5, let me read verses 12 through 17, and we'll begin to go through the next section of what Paul is trying to communicate here. So verse 12 of Romans 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which comes from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind that the reason why Paul keeps going in all these different directions even though they're all related to what he's talking about, Paul is defending the gospel. He is thinking in advance of the types of objections and difficulties that people will have with what he's saying. Because when we, when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about not just the good news of Jesus Christ. We're saying that this is universal truth. We're saying that the gospel, the good news of Christ, is the truth from God that applies to every single human being across the planet. Whether the individual is in India or China or South America or Russia or anywhere else, this truth is always true and it's true for them. You have a need for Christ, whether you live in America or whether you live in Ecuador or whether you live again in Japan or Korea. This is the truth that you need. Your life, you are living in rebellion to God. Regardless of your background, regardless of what you've learned from your ancestors, if, if, they, if what they've given you does not line up with this, this is the truth. So he's going to exact things out of all these various statements that he's giving to formulate this all-around defense that no matter what culture or time period you live in, when you come to the book of Romans and you read it, there's going to be something there that's going to address whatever objection you might be thinking of or that you might naturally have as a result of the way you were raised or the way you were educated or maybe because of cultural biases. So again, remember that we're dealing with universal truth. This, that which is true for all people for all time, whether again the individual lived in the 1500s or the individual who's not even yet been born, regardless of where the technology was, the bottom line is, is this is a basic problem that man has, his separation from God, and there is one solution for all time. And this solution, this event that took place in history, uh, the, the life and the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, truly does answer the question. 
and the meta narrative. Okay, I've used that term before on Sunday mornings. A meta narrative is an overarching story that explains the world to us, explains life to us. So again, no matter what country you live in, no matter what cultural background you have, there is a true story, a historical story that explains why there is discord and disease and war and inconsistencies uh, in governments and inconsistencies in societies. Everything is explained and the solution is explained in this meta-narrative. That's what Paul is dabbling in as we work our way through these verses. So we're going to basically talk about the reason why every man desperately needs to be justified by faith. And that means by putting his his faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who think in Yeah, there are those who think that um Christianity is an American religion. Okay, remember it's not an American religion. It is Semitic at its base. It came out of the Middle East. It's the truth of God, but the historical roots or the origin of all of these events is in the Middle East. It happened in Israel. Um, it has shaped America greatly, and we should all be thankful for that. But this is not a white man's religion. This is not an American religion. This is the truth. And this is the truth for all people again for all time, regardless of ethnicity, cultural background, etc. Paul wants us to see from the Word of God why it is that all men have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not because of the way we are raised. See, some people think, well, if you're, if you're raised in Japan, of course you're a Buddhist. Well, it's true that many in Japan are Buddhist. But just because you are raised as a Buddhist, it is not, of course, you're a Buddhist. I understand that that's been the greatest influence on your life. But there are countless stories through the centuries of individuals who were raised in cultures where they were in, which is normal, they were indoctrinated with the philosophy and the religion of their culture and parents, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity in America or Islam or what have you. Plenty of individuals who, on their own, began to doubt what they were told. They began to look around, which we've seen in Romans. Romans says, all men know, all men know that God exists. So even though a Buddhist is taught from his entire life that there is no God, there is no one supreme being, there may be a God consciousness, uh, there may be a, a divine something that's out there, but it's not a person. Yet these individuals know because God has placed in the heart of every single person that truth. And so that person knows that, no matter how great the influence, which is a phenomenal thing to think about. So we need to see from the Word of God why it is that all men who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they are sinners. And the reason is, and that's what Paul's explaining here, is they are in Adam as opposed to being in Christ. And so this is part of dissecting the meta-narrative that really comes out of the book of Genesis. And so we'll be talking about Genesis a little bit as we work our way through here. So actually, verses 12 through 21 in Romans 5 gives us the contrast of what it means to be in Adam and what it means to be in Christ, which is really what it means to be in the flesh and what it means to be in the spirit, what it means to be a non-believer or a pagan and what it means to be a believer. A lot of things happen. When we become a believer in Jesus Christ, it's, it's not like we've just changed addresses and I give you a new form to, send, to forward my mail to. There is this absolute transformation of everything within you, your behavior, your beliefs, your attitude, uh, um, the way that you think through things, the measurement of truth that we will use, the standard of truth that we'll use, all these things are affected by what it means to be in Christ, to, to become this believer in Christ. It transforms everything. Uh, and it helps us to understand why it is that in some countries still to this day, there is such a... Uh, individuals or leaders are so driven to get rid of Christianity. Christianity is always a threat to them. Part of that is because those who are Christians 
tend to think better. We think more clearly. Why? Not because we're more brilliant than anybody else, but because God has given to us His truth and His word. It's, it's, it's propositional truth. It is universal truth that enables us to understand the whole world for what it is. So I'm able to evaluate that this government or this philosophy is corrupt because of the truth that I'm given. And so Christianity then is, is viewed as a threat. Uh, if you believe other things, like for example, if you, if you were raised to believe in the way that the Baha'i believes, well, there's no threat there. You know, there are many, many paths to truth. We all just seek peace. Uh, we don't we want there to be no confrontation. We accept everyone the way they are, and there's no need to change. Well, that's no threat to anybody. And so no one's trying to stamp that out. I mean, you'll, you'll have occasions where people are doing it for whatever the reason. But universally, throughout history, in all places, Christianity is viewed as a threat. And there are many re- reasons why, and that's one of them. So again, we, we should ask the question, what event took place that caused men to be born ungodly sinners and disrespect for enemies of God. Remember that the, the universal truth, this is God's world. In the beginning, we know that there, there was a start to everything, and it's God. God created the universe. There was a point in time when there was no universe. There was no planet Earth. God then, in time, created the universe. He created a planet, and he created everything on that planet, and he created man, and he created man in his image. And he created man to have dominance over the planet Earth, to care for it. Uh, You know, it's a gift and a responsibility that God has given to us. And God also created man to have fellowship with him, with God. Man then, as we know, there's what event, we ask us what event took place so that all of us are born sinners. Well, Adam and Eve sinned. And so we're going to talk about that. And that set everything uh, into chaos. Every, their turmoil began at that point. So again, we, we already know the answer to this question, which is, you know, the question is, how are we justified? How are we declared righteous? How are we made right? That's by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to do for us what we could never do for himself, do for ourselves. And again, part of that universal truth is that because God demands perfection, not only in in life or in obedience but in the essence of who we are that that we obey perfectly out of our own goodness and that we are always that way that's that's god's standard no man can can ever meet that standard because by the time we have the realization that that's the standard it's already too late we've already sinned against god we've we've sinned willfully in many ways we we can never offer anything to god that causes god to have to give to us or reward us with salvation. And so we, we, you know, we needed help. We needed to be delivered. And that was the plan of God, which was by sending us in Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So you want to keep in mind, I guess if you think about this in an in apologetics kind of a way, that we're dealing with universal truths. And so we want to think in a sense, globally about this. I'm not talking about the, you know, the global village, that kind of thing, but globally in that we need, to, we need to look at this passage not only from our cultural context, but from the cultural context of any culture. Does this measure up? Is this truth? How does this apply to them? You know, that type of thing. So we need to make sure we understand what it means to be in Adam, what it means to be in Christ. When you put your faith into Christ, you are taken out of Adam and you're placed into the body of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians that you're taken out from under the power of darkness and you're placed in the kingdom of his son. All of this, all of these things are different ways to describe um, the bondage that we were in as, as sinners. In other words, again, man rebelled, man is born a sinner, we uh, we are born spiritually dead. We are born as slaves to sin. Everything we do is motivated from sin. We sin 24 hours a day. Every breath we take, if we're not submitting to God uh, in obedience to believing in the gospel, that means we're breathing in and out rebellion all the time against God. That's what he's talking about here. And so man needs to be delivered from that state. So that's why he talks about being in Adam and being in Christ. It's one or the other. 
uh, he's talking about our spiritual position. So if you are in Adam, you are a pagan. You are a non-believer. You are a rebel against God. You want nothing to do with God. You are in need of deliverance. You are under the power of sin. You are a slave to sin. All those things apply. To be in Christ means you're delivered from all of that, and you are now in fellowship with God. You are no longer his enemy. You are now, you are now his child. You now have a special relationship with God, so that God is, in one hand, he's no longer your judge, he's your father, which is an incredible thing to think about. So, Paul then, because he's, he's thinking multiculturally, he wants to make sure he communicates his truth accurately, to both Jew and Gentile, and Paul was really uniquely qualified to do that. Um, he understood all these cultures as well as the Jewish culture. So Paul is going to show us why even Abraham had to be justified, because there were some Jewish people, maybe we might even call them Jewish theologians, who were thinking that perhaps Abraham didn't need to be justified. Abraham was, he was the guy. You need to be like Abraham and have the faith of Abraham. Abraham was so great, he didn't need to be justified. And so, Paul, that's why Paul spends time making sure they understand that Abraham himself needed to be justified. So if Abraham, who in essence is called in other places the father of our faith, uh, then, and he had to be justified, then what hope is there for anyone else? The only hope is the same, which is we have to be justified as well. So, the problem then does not come from what we're doing on the outside, though that's problematic. The problem is on the inside. We have to be changed from within. Remember that we do what we do because of what we are. Okay, Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about where does sin come from? Where does adultery come from? It comes from the heart. When a man commits adultery outwardly, it's because he's already committed it inwardly. But even the man who has not committed adultery outwardly is just as guilty as the man who has committed adultery outwardly because they both have committed, committed it inwardly. And that is an offense to God. Our greed, our distaste for others, our selfishness, all of that comes from the inside. What we do outwardly are, is just a manifestation of the, our heart a manifestation of the darkness of our heart. When we see our children, even our young children, disobey uh, when they lie, it, it comes from a heart that's darkened. They've already done it in their heart. You know, there's the, the time that we live in, there's several individuals who have taken a video or a recording of their young children lying to them. Sometimes it's humorous. It's funny uh, because of the situation. For example, there's been several recordings of little kids, you know, three, four, five years old, who they have icing all over their face. And the mom or the dad comes in the kitchen and says, were you eating donuts or were you eating the cake? And they're saying no, but the evidence is right there. And, and it's kind of funny because of how obvious it is, but at the same time, Where'd they learn to do that? Why are they doing that to be funny? They're not doing it to be funny. They're they're being serious. They're trying to convince their parent that they have not done what they've actually done, what they've just finished doing. They just are unaware of the evidence that's right there. Normally what happens is we just get better at lying. You know what happens if you're in the kitchen and you're eating the cake and you got icing on your face, parents walk in, you wipe it off. Right? Why do we do that? Well, because we, we already intend to lie. We want to get away with whatever. And so, again, the Bible makes it clear that the problem is the inside. And that's what Paul is seeking to explain to us, how that's affected and, and what God has done about that. So, again, verse 12 starts all this off. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So when we look at this theologically, sin was not in the world, meaning it was not in the world on a, on a, in, a, in a permanent way. It wasn't like there was the presence of sin dwelling on the earth. Adam and Eve were made perfectly. All of creation was good. There was no killing 
There was no disease. There was no death. None of that existed in the world. We know that Satan showed up and was and he tempted Eve, but sin was not yet in the world. It was in Satan, but it was not yet a part of the world. So the word entered here in verse 12. Uh, in the Greek language, it's called what is what is the aorist indicative case. It means that at a certain point in time, it took place. So it's just, all this simply means is that there was a, uh, a point in time when this happened. So when he said, as through one man sin entered, entered meaning at one point this took place. Adam sinned at that point in time. And the consequence of sin was immediate. So the sin now entered the world. So that would be the, the principle of sin. As through one man, the principle of sin, the sin entered the world. It affected the whole world that we're living in. It affected animal life, it affected plant life, and especially it affected humankind. With the sin came the consequence of that sin. And what does it say? And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So a couple things here. There was no death before. The principle of sin entered the world. The moment that happened, death spread to all men. Then it adds, because all, all sinned. So there's two ways to look at that. I think we could say that both are being, well, it's more than just hinted at, but there's the idea that because Adam sinned, we sinned. And we'll develop that idea in just a minute. Adam was our federal head. Adam and Eve represented the entire human race because in a sense, the entire human race was in their loins when all this took place. At the same time, there is this individual truth, which is true, which is every single person who's ever been born commits sin. So all of us commit acts of sin, our own acts of sin. So we're born with a sin nature, but we also are all guilty of committing acts of sin from very early on. And so that's what's explained here theologically in this passage. So again, you heard me saying before, I kept saying the sin, the sin principle. That's because in the Greek, there's a definite article where it is the sin of Adam affected the death, which was the consequence God warned them would take place. <coughs> Excuse me. So he's really focusing then on, again, on, on the sin principle and the principle of death. Death exists throughout the entire world. Right? It's, not just, it's not just a death that happens by war or just a death that happens by suicide or just a death that happens by disease. There is death as a whole as a result of the sin that has um, uh, entered the world. So Adam and Eve, most likely, in fact, I would say it's for sure, they did not understand the devastating consequence of what their sinful choices were going to be. They didn't realize there was going to be spiritual death. Remember, they were created spiritually alive. They didn't know what spiritual death was. They didn't know what any kind of death was. And they didn't realize it was going to be a consequence that would affect the entire human race. So again, the scripture says, the death through the sin, and so the death spread to all men. The death spread to all men. The word spread here means to pass through or to travel through. So instead of to all men, it is really into all men. So it really should be so that death spread into all men. And what, what we're trying to emphasize with that is, again, the principle of death. And that is this. You, sometimes you'll hear individuals say this. Sometimes philosophers will say this. It's been said a lot through the years. And that is this. That the moment that you and I are born, the process of death begins. And that's true. Even though we're... When we're young, we're growing and getting bigger and stronger and smarter, all those types of things. The process of, of death has already begun. All of us at this moment are dying. All of us are. Some of us are, are more aware of that because we've been diagnosed with a disease. We've been told that we have cancer or we've been told that we have diabetes. So we know that that means that our life is more fragile than others. Death may be coming sooner for us. We need to take certain actions to prevent an early death or, you know, that, that's what the, the, the goal is. You know, the doctor may tell you that you need to lose weight 
because if you don't, you are accelerating the death principle. They may not say it that way, but that's really what's going on. So we, we take care of ourselves trying to, you know, we say, well, we make jokes about trying to hold off father time. And that, that's fine, you know, for us to joke about that and say that. But what we really mean by that is father time is death. Death is coming for all of us. And it's going to, and that's going to happen until the Lord returns. You know, it's not the way things were supposed to be. It is not the way things will be in the future, but it is the way things are now. So the principle of death works in all of us. Uh, so you can say, uh, you can do this honestly. You go to the doctor and someone says, hey, how do things go? You say, well, he said I was dying. And of course, people freak out when you say that. But, but again, that's the truth. And that's what Paul wants these individuals to understand. Now, just keep in mind that the era in which Paul lived, Everybody there was fully aware of that. Death was something that they lived with every day. You didn't have a society where you had large numbers of people living into their 70s and 80s and 90s. Many, many people died in their 30s and 40s. I was stunned by this when I, when I uh, was reading some history about our own country. Uh, you know, we talk about how there was that, back in the 1800s, there was this drive westward, you know, to move to California. And, you know, you see cowboy and Indian movies and westward journey movies where pioneers are moving out, all trying to, to move out west and find more land or whatever. Well, the average age of those individuals was 16 and 17 years of age. And for many of us, we never, that never occurred to us because when we watch the movies, they're always in their 30s. You know, mature individuals, these are kids. And then uh, the average age of death for a long time for those who lived as they were exploring Arizona, New Mexico, and California, they, they died in their 30s. You know, you, you had some people back in the east, in the cities, who would live into their 80s. But for the most part, uh, the average age of death was pretty young. Well, during the time of Paul, there are many things that could kill you. Remember, we... You know, if, think about it this way. If you were to go to a building today that houses dialysis machines for those who have difficulties with kidneys, and let's say that this dialysis place treats a thousand patients a week, remember that 150 years ago, those thousand people would all be dead. There would be no treatment for them. When it comes to diabetes, Let's say, let's, I have no idea what the number is of individuals who have diabetes. But let's say that uh, right now in our country, let's say that there's 100 and, uh, let's say that there's, there's, there's a million people with diabetes. That's a pretty good chance that if this was 100 years ago, that, one, that population of a million people, they wouldn't exist. They'd all be dead. There was no way, to, they didn't know what that was. They couldn't defeat it. And then all the other diseases that we've been able to eradicate or move beyond because of better health practices, better medicine, vaccines, all those types of things. I mean, it's truly amazing. So there's large numbers of people today that are alive that even 50 years ago, they would not be around if it was the same circumstance. So we live in a great time. But even with all of that, death is still coming. It's just a reality of life. And so when Paul talks about this, these people, they're not offended. They're not thinking, why is he talking about death? Who wants to talk about death? They talked about death all the time. It was a very common subject. The idea that your life was short um, was not a, an unknown kind of thing, to say the least. So again, this death, this principle of death, spread into all men. The, the little word is, which is uh, uh, used there, means into. So when Adam sinned, out of his body was passed on uh, the seed of sin to mankind, and from that point on, into man, the death, the sin. So the principle of sin was passed into man, and the principle of death was passed into man. So every man, every every man born of man, uh, actually, let me say, let me say it this way: every man and woman born on this earth is born into the sin, is born into Adam, is born into the death, and thus the sin is in them, 
and the death principle is in them. And that is how we begin before we've done anything else. Before anything happens, it's there. And that is why we know sometimes, sadly, there are, there are times when a woman is pregnant and her baby dies because of, of the principle of death, which is already into all men. The, the principle of sin is already there. And so that's why there is death uh, at that time. Now this, by the way, this whole thing that Paul is talking about, <clears throat> it kind of uh, shuts the mouths of, of liberals. Within, within Christianity, you know, you can use the term Christianity really pretty loosely to include those who just go to church or those who may teach at a religious school or a Christian school. But there are more and more individuals who are trying to deny the literal truth, the literal creation story of Genesis, and say that even when it comes to Adam, that Adam was just a generic term for the human race. But that really throws a wrench into what Paul is saying, because Paul is saying that there was specifically one man that caused all this to happen. This is the Word of God that's speaking. So the theological truth that we have here in Romans is based on the historical truth of the book of Genesis, which is not that well, we had one generic man and that Adam is not a person, but is just mankind. No, he was our federal head, which I'll get to again in a moment, but it was a, a real individual. Adam and Eve were real people. They had real lives. Yes, they were tempted by Satan, and yes, they sinned. They ate from the of the fruit that's from the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil that was in direct disobedience to what God said, and they were kicked out of the garden. And thus, the moment they did that, they died spiritually, and the principle of sin and the principle of death was in them and passed on to their offspring until the Lord returns. And that's why all of us have that today and all of us are in need of salvation. So again, the entire argument then of Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 would become irrelevant if the record in Genesis of the creation and the fall of Adam didn't happen as recorded. So again, twisting the Genesis record undermines and destroys the gospel of salvation. That's why there's a big deal, and it is a big deal, concerning what we believe about the, especially the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis. What we believe, that is the foundation of what we believe as Christians. Meaning, what we believe about the gospel. What we know to be true about the gospel, the gospel story. All of that rests on the foundation of the reality and the history of what has taken place in real time in the first 10 chapters of Genesis. And so then, if an individual does not believe in the historical accuracy, the reality of the first 10 chapters of Genesis, it undermines, at best, their Christianity. At worst, it may mean they're not even a Christian at all. It does matter what we believe. Individuals may try to say that there's reasons, that there's justification to not take Genesis literally. That is simply untrue. There are reasons people throw out there, but if we're going to investigate those in an intellectually honest way, they all fall apart. They have been dealt with in great detail from many different angles by many wonderful, marvelous Christians. And so if anybody really wants to know the truth of that, the answers are there. Often what happens is, an individual, because of their sin, because of their natural rebellion against God, they don't like what Genesis says. So when someone comes along and gives three flimsy reasons as to why we can doubt Genesis, man, they gravitate to that. They embrace that, and they'll hold that up high and say, well, and they'll sound, you know, well, you know, the reason why we don't believe in Genesis is because, and they give you all these reasons, which can sound intellectual intellectually smart but it, they're not they're they're groundless they're baseless but man believes those things because he wants to not because that's where the evidence points to and so we need to keep that in mind uh, when it comes to this so again 
on five occasions in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, on five occasions, the principle of one sin by one man is asserted. So Paul states it over and over and over again. He is really pounding that truth home, to say the least. So again, now let's deal for just a few moments with the, with the term federal. That's the term I've used. The fed, he's our federal head. You'll find this in a lot of commentaries. They describe Adam as our federal head. They use that to indicate the action of one for, for all in a representative manner or for the consequences of such action. So and we're, we're kind of familiar with that if you've been going to church for a while, that we call it, we call it the sin of Adam. We, we say we all die because of Adam. The earth is, is cursed by sin because of Adam, all because of that. So Paul begins the analogy of Christ with Adam. And the reason why is because uh, Christ, as we know, is our substitute. He, when, when he is punished on the cross for my sin, he is there in my place. I'm a believer. If you're a believer, he was in there in your place. So he did represent you in a very real way. And so Adam is our federal head. Christ, I guess you would say, is our federal head. So there's that common principle that has really far-reaching effect on countless other people uh, throughout the generations. So again, as I've already mentioned, God gave Adam one simple prohibition, but the consequence for that disobedience of that, of that uh, prohibition was very severe. When Adam disobeyed God, sin, the sin, entered into his life and generated a constitutional change in his nature or in his basic makeup. So Adam went from innocence to sinfulness, an innate sinfulness that would be transmitted to every one of his descendants. So Paul's argument then begins with the assertion that through Adam, again, through this very real historical figure, there are only two people on the earth, two people on the entire planet at that time, sin entered the world. Remember that Paul does not speak of sins, but he speaks of sin in the plural. Because there was more than one sin committed when they disobeyed God. But the sin principle entered because of that. So, in this sense, sin does not represent a particular unrighteous act, but rather the inherent propensity to unrighteousness in thought, word, and deed. Which basically means our natural tendency to think unrighteously to speak unrighteously and to do unrighteousness, we have a natural bent to do that. That's why we don't teach our kids to do wrong. They do that naturally. We don't teach them to rebel. They do that naturally. We don't teach them to be disrespectful. They do that naturally. They have a natural bent to go in that direction. So it was not the many other sinful acts that Adam eventually committed, but it was the indwelling sin nature that he came to possess because of his first disobedience, and that's what he passed on uh, to his uh, pro pro uh, progeny. So just as Adam bequeathed his physical nature to his posterity, he also bequeathed to them his spiritual nature, which was dead, which henceforth was characterized and dominated by sin. So again, the sin spread into all men. Men, you've heard me and many others say this, men are not sinners because they sin, but rather we sin because we are all sinners. You don't need to see an act of sin to prove you are a sinner. So when you meet a non-believer, you already know they're a sinner because of what the Bible says. You don't, you don't have to know what they've done. You already know it. And it's, it's true in every case. So again, Paul is saying that we are sinners because we were in Adam when he sinned. Uh, he was the federal head of the human race. And so then until a person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, they are in Adam. We present the gospel to them. So if they place their faith in Christ, they would then be placed by God in Christ and no longer in Adam. So again, as I've already said before, because all humanity existed in the loins of Adam and have through procreation inherited his fallenness and depravity, it can be said that all sinned in him. So therefore, to reiterate, humans are not sinners because they sin, but rather they sin because they are sinners. So we'll continue a little more on this next week when we get together. I trust this is helpful uh, in helping you to understand, I guess, uh, life better theologically based on what the Word of God says and why, again, there's such a great need for the wonderful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the information that you give to us in your Word. 
that helps us to follow, helps us father to understand the need we have for Christ, the universal need there is for Christ, and again grateful that the universal need was met by Christ. Bless us now, Father. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.